We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and respect. I'm Kimberly McKenzie. And I'm Paul Nazareth. Welcome to The Intersection. Simone Joyou was a trailblazer, rabble-rouser, teacher, writer, movie lover, reader, and she tirelessly worked to improve and build the charitable sector and the people who worked in it. You may know that Simone recently died suddenly from a stroke caused by a cerebral amyloid angiopathy, a condition she had been living with for 14 months. Her passing shocked and broke the hearts of thousands of people around the world. In 2015, I had the opportunity to sit down and record a conversation with Simone. The first half of this conversation was originally published in Hillborn's charity E-News in April 2016 when I served as the editor. In the second half of the conversation, Simone and I chat about her tendency to be provocative and the importance of asking cage-rattling questions and why she did it so darn much. This portion of the conversation has never been published, and thanks to the permission of her partner, Tom Ahern, I am happy to share our unedited conversation with you today. Simone, thank you for making time. You've been a part of my um, fundraising career, well, I won't say how long, but <laughs> really, yeah. Oh, I, when I first started, you were coming to AFP Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a volunteer at uh, the bookstore there, I and it was my. You remember that? That was my first conference, and that was 16 years ago. Oh my! I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm starting my 29th year in business as a consultant, and I had other positions before that and I'm starting my 29th year so it's time moves quickly (laughs) doesn't it though but we're not getting any older and I know I have learned from you strategic fund development I I used that book a lot when I was a director of development and executive director and I've learned a lot from you about governance and working with boards so um, here we are in the Netherlands at at the Resource Alliance International Fundraising Conference, and we've got a little bit of time together. I thought it would be fun to talk to you a little bit more about your work with boards, and perhaps, do you think we're making any progress? It feels to me like we're having the same conversation over and over and over again. Really smart people walk into a boardroom, they leave their brain at the door, and they can't make decisions on behalf of charities. Would you say that that is my perception a little accurate? I have the same perception you do. Uh, Sort of in in two parts, the same two parts you mentioned, Kimberly, which is, one, it feels like we keep talking about things over and over, and so little progress is made. And I would suggest that is related to fundraising as well as governance as well as whatever. Um, And so wouldn't it be wonderful if at some point there could be some sort of think tank coupled with research about why 
as a sector, we aren't making progress. Or perhaps let's step back. You and I are saying we're not making progress, but maybe evidence research would show us that right. we are. Mm -hmm. So that said, I think when it comes to boards that there's this confluence of circumstances. So one I would say is I don't think very many executive directors, CEOs, actually understand what governance is. It's not in CEO job descriptions. Mm -hmm. And my theory is that the professionals are supposed to know about fundraising and governance and these sorts of things because they need to guide us as the board or as individual board members because you know, how did I learn about governance? Well, because I started reading books and doing it, et cetera, et cetera. Most volunteers aren't going to do that. I mean, I did it as a professional. Mm -hmm. Our lives, we are taught management. Finish your homework and you can go out and play. Everything is management. So when we get together as a board, you look around the room and you think, I don't care how many boards you've served on. Do you actually know what governance is? And then uh, there, there doesn't seem to be oftentimes anyone within the organization on staff who understands what governance is and the distinction between the board and the individual board member. Right. And, and part of that, I wonder if that's the, the transition <clears throat> for a lot of smaller charities. They have boards. They've got a working board. They finally hire an executive director. They have right. to make that transition to a yes. governing board. Yes. And I think that is true. I think... Though additionally, we tend to hire program people to become the executive director. That seems to be the track. Right. You know, I'm one heck of a great program person, and then I become the program director, and, and now, you know, I'm going to be the executive director. And I had this conversation, actually, with an executive director more recently of a small organization, and I said, your job is not to be the senior program officer. Your job is to know enough about finance, enough about governance, enough about fundraising mm -hmm. to lead, facilitate, enable the board, and you don't have enough money to hire a development director, so you're one of your major jobs is being the development director. And her response to me was, wow, nobody's ever told me that. I don't want to do that. Mm. I'm glad I'm retiring soon. <laughs> right. Somebody else's problem. Because then they can hire an executive director who knows those things. Right. So... How long do you think it takes? If, if the, the information is out there, yes. you have many articles and books online that people can mm -hmm. read, the how-to. Um, <clears throat> what do you think the most important first step? Let's give ourselves a scenario. We've yeah. got an executive director, um, a siloed board that's not mm -hmm. involved in the government governance, that she knows she needs gift acceptance policies or something like mm -hmm. that, but it's just too hard. And the board meetings... They come in, they approve the minutes of the last meeting, they get their update, and then the board meeting's meet. over, and then they go. <laughs> so the real conversations don't happen. But let's say that our, our uh, in our scenario, the executive director is somebody who actually wants to transform yes. and create a functional board. Yes. Two questions come to mind. What should she tackle first? Because mm -hmm. let's say this board meets three times a year, and uh, how long is it going to take her? So I'll or do this, him. or I'll do the second one first. Okay. I think that you should assume that it could take two years to really significantly change the board. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and the way I always start is 
You just have to find one or two allies. So her first or his first job as the executive director is to, you know, they, they should be, he or she should be informally talking with board members all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. And begin to sort of say, well, I was at this conference and I heard this interesting speech or I read this interesting article. So you're just trying to find an ally who says, hmm, you mean there's actually really a body of knowledge about governance? And so you just begin to try to build, and even if you only can find one. Now, simultaneous to that sort of very gracious, you know, building allies so that then you can raise issues, is <clears throat> there are days when I'm really into shock and awe. Now, really? Yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> now, as a phrase, of course, made yeah. famous by a past president in the United States. When I find a really recalcitrant group that's very cavalier about, well, we're important people and it's all fine and whatever, I move into shock and awe. And so I would look at the community one is in. So, for example, if you're in the United States, you can then begin to talk about all of the articles that have been in the major press as well as in the trade publications talking about that board screwed up, that board screwed up, these people are going to be sued, etc., and there's been a series of interesting articles in one of my favorite publications, the nonprofit Quarterly out of the U.S., that actually says, so now people like um, regulators and donors are getting annoyed enough that even if the board didn't do anything, there's no malfeasance, it's just they're crappy decision makers and crappy overseers, and now that's in the newspaper. So, you know, my theory is, oh, dear, I don't want to be in the newspaper. (laughs) So I blend the golly gosh and the always finding allies and the, you know, we do do an audit or we do performance evaluation. We should be looking at governance. Mm -hmm. And then I throw in shock and awe if I need to be, Mm -hmm. if I need to, so that we can get just one or two people on the board who say, let's talk about this. Now, I'm still not ready for them to say that at the board meeting. Right. For to everybody. But now I, as the executive director, can start filtering some interesting articles. And so you know, how might this apply to us? So, you know, all of that is the kind of advocacy, nurturing piece, and then the this and then the that. And that's going to take us, I don't know, months. I, yeah. <laughs> well, what the interesting thing about that approach is it's not an executive director being authoritative whiny, uh, aggressive with the board, alienating the board. You're taking a real soft approach to a respectful approach. You are the board. Maybe this might be of interest to you. Do you think we should talk about it more? Exactly. That kind of thing. And the key point, one of the key points here is that as a good executive director, you're talking to all the different board members about things, not the stuff that has to go to the board meeting, because... That's not fair. We don't pick. But you don't have to go through the board chair to talk to anybody. Because mm-hmm. the board chair might actually be one of the barriers. Right. So you should be having relationships with all of them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And Absolutely. then it, you know. Now, some organizations then make the decision. <clears throat> I'm thinking of a particular former client of mine where it was like, okay, now we have five people on the board, you know, that think this is a good idea or whatever, to start talking about this. And then they're kind of going to the executive director, I don't know, how should we talk about this? Now, 
I know executive directors who could say, I actually know tons about governance. So I can facilitate some conversations, identify some articles. Then sometimes someone will say, the executive director might say, I think we should get the CEO of this other big charity in our community because she's great at governance and got that award, you know, about good governance. And we ask her to volunteer with us and help us through some of this. And then if none of that's going to work, then you go and you hire a consultant Mm -hmm. who will do certain things in a narrow scope, so to speak, or in a broader scope. And, you know, depending on where you're located, there are community foundations that give grants for this kind of capacity building. So you just, you know, you look at all different ways. Mm -hmm. Would our board react better to someone from outside, like that great CEO at the big charity? Mm -hmm. Would our board react better if it was us? It's, it's really interesting, isn't it, for, for many of those, many charities, put a lot of great, a great deal of effort and expense and an ex, exhaustive search process to find a CEO, and it seems to me like the second they hire that person, they're no longer doing what that person's recommending. So many boards do need to hire an external person to do that. And at the risk, I mean, you and I are both consultants with boards, so I don't want to get too far into that because right. this isn't... But but it, it it's so true that, right. that oftentimes that external voice is the one that gets heard. Right. Well, it's actually somebody said this to me the other day at this, at this conference here in the Netherlands where we are. It said something about... Yeah, no, that's the point where I'm going to not take the risk to say it myself. I'm going to get some consultant to come in and say it. And yeah. my response when they said that was, yeah, I think of the consultant as the one that the blood's going to get spilled Absolutely. on to save you, <laughs> the staff person, from bleeding. That's right. the point. But that, that speaks to the underlying fear that many CEOs have that if they do say the provocative cage-rattling things, as you put it, they may lose their job. Right. And if they don't say it in the appropriate manner and provide leadership and guidance, they may lose the organization because it can't be competent. So again, it's one of those judgment Mm -hmm. moments. Yes, the board hires you and appraises your performance. The board does, not the board chair. By the same token, a good board expects the CEO, the executive director, to be giving guidance and saying, no, that's not my decision, that's yours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to then talk about, I don't know, are we talking too much about this and that's really more management? Or what little thread is governance? That appreciative inquiry of the board, that gentle way of presenting Mm -hmm. the questions. Mm -hmm. Simone, let's talk about uh, your reputation for being a bit of a cage rattler. Yes. (laughs) Is there something in particular... A cage, bit of a cage rattler, or well, provocative, or aggressive. Uh, yeah, we've I've heard we've had those conversations before, and I I, I, I will confess to to some ha- times being called those things too, and and I'm interested in in your thoughts on that. Why why do you think the world needs to put itself out there a little more? I think that in much of life we have what I call dysfunctional politeness. So I remember years and years and years ago, I was having, I don't know, I may have been at a conference or something or at a board meeting, but it was with a colleague 
who has since sort of moved into retirement. And she's one of those very, very gracious people. I mean, you know, just really gracious and, and lovely. And we're, we were friends. We are still friends. And I made some statement at some meeting or something, and she said, well, I couldn't disagree with you more. Now, again, this is this person that maybe I just had a lovely lunch with, and we were all, you know, huggy-kissy, whatever. And so there was this moment when I was, like, taken aback, and then I thought, yippee. <laughs> she didn't say, I couldn't disagree with you more, you nasty, evil person. She right. said, I couldn't disagree with you more. Well, we were both clearly passionate about this, and for heaven's sake, if we're not passionate about the board work or if we're not, you know, really engaged, yeah, whatever, I don't care. Right. So I then, so that was part of my, hey, wow. And then I watched dysfunctional groups being just so dysfunctionally polite I couldn't stand it. Then I started <clears throat> sort of really figuring out who I wanted to be. So all these different threads started coming together. And this, as I had said earlier, um, Kimberly, that I'm starting my 29th year in business in January. But I started working in the field in 1975, so it's been, you know, 40 years, I believe. My math's correct. Own it. Own it, Simone. Exactly. <laughs> and so I sort of started to realize, hey, I, wanna, I want somebody to tell me the truth about things, be honest, genuine, authentic, candid. I want to be able to do the same thing. So I got more and more into, <clears throat> wait a minute, we really should talk about this, this issue as opposed to saying, well, okay, and then we sort of leave it all in this sort of neutral mess. And then, of course, we have the parking lot questions afterwards or the conversations. So I decided I wanted to start really being honest and candid and very, very straightforward. And so... I started doing that, and then I started being more, I don't know, I, I, somewhere around there I also started writing and presenting, and I started developing like a performance style practically, and I always try to, I, I sort of mentioned a lot of times to people, I test as an introvert. What you see is behavior that I have chosen to do in my life's work and in certain situations. You know, the rest of the time, I'm not going to parties, I'm not getting conferences, I'm staying home, I'm reading a novel, you know, quiet and by myself. So I decided that there wasn't enough candor. I wasn't seeing it. I was seeing so much of this dysfunctional politeness. I felt like we're missing things. We're we shouldn't be talking about that. We should be talking about this really big thing. And it's <laughs> fascinating when you can see in a staff meeting or any kind of meeting, uh, everybody's saying what they think they're supposed to say. Mm -hmm. But often there are other, everybody really wants to talk about something else, but nobody has the courage to bring it right. up. Or it's too high of a risk. Yeah. And so somewhere along this whole path, this journey, I realized that I had the capacity to choose to take the risk because I don't have children. I have a life partner husband. We both earn money. Now, we're both consultants, so we, we have to be liked by enough people to get work. <laughs> 
but we both sort of separately from each other decided that to do what we felt was the best, we had to be really candid and honest. Mm. Now, I've talked with consultants who've said, well, what they do is they sort of, you know, the client or the proposed client has this expectation, and the consultant knows full well that it's probably unrealistic. But they decide to try to get the job, and then they'll tell them later that it's unrealistic. I tried that, and I didn't like the way it worked. So I will start out, if you're interviewing me, you know, to be your consultant, and I'll start out right away, and we'll talk a little bit, and I'll go, oh, dear. I, I, don't, I think that's unrealistic, Kimberly. I just, I don't, mm, oh, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. We would have to deal with that. And you're thinking, I don't want to deal with that. So right then, I'm figuring out whether I want to work with you or not, and you're figuring out the same thing. It's not like I have any secret knowledge. Mm. I don't. I know the same thing that most fundraisers know. Otherwise, we're not real. Mm-hmm. We're not a profession. But I decided that I was going to be really candid, and I was going to rattle as many cages as possible because I think that the sector deserves better. So when I, I we were in Hamilton together a while right. back, and you did a plenary there about this, uh, would you recommend that fresh out of school fundraising students in their first <laughs> job <laughs> be provocative? Is this a privileged place that you own in the in the sector? How and when might that be appropriate for other people? Oh, that's very interesting. That question. I think that. So I could never have done what I do now and have been doing for the last 25 years or so, being so provocative in earlier years. You, in my experience, Simone, you, it, that, that kind of confidence and it, it doesn't come until you're after 45. Like, yeah, I mean, on the right. other side of 40, maybe. Right. And it's a confidence that you feel like you have enough knowledge, hmm. even though you realize that somebody else has as much knowledge as you do and then it's going to push back and you're going to go, whoa, I think you're more right than I was. So, but then there's also this self-confidence as a human being. Yeah. And we each need to find our own philosophy. So, and I say this, uh, I teach at St. Mary's University in Minnesota every um, summer. And it's a master's program in philanthropy and development. And I'm always saying to my colleagues there in the classroom, there's a bunch of stuff we're going to talk about that's body of knowledge. Feel free to question it, but then we're going to talk about how it's body of knowledge. But then you are going to have to decide your own philosophical approach. You're going to have to decide what kind of environment do you want to work in. Really candid? This, that? You're going to have to decide where your comfort level is in asking challenging questions. Cage-rattling questions are slightly different than essential questions. Cage-rattling questions are really intended to rock the boat and make people worry. Not every situation deserves that kind of question or should have that kind of question. We also have to learn um, and find our own sort of philosophy and pattern in when will I be soft and when will I be hard? Mm -hmm. And what's the balance? That's a level of emotional intelligence that's required to make that judgment. Right. I'm not seeing that at 21 necessarily, although maybe. (laughs) Maybe. And then, again, you evolve and you find I'm more of a this and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I think maybe maybe what you're talking about is just owning your space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right? I created a space and took from other spaces and said, I can handle this. Now, do I get pushback? Absolutely. Do I get comments in evaluations like, 
How dare she talk about race and ethnicity and gender bias and all that stuff. I came here for fundraising. I don't want to hear about that. <laughs> well, I believe that that's part of fundraising. Mm -hmm. And I'm sufficiently out in interviews with, can with people who might want to hire me or might not and sufficiently out and well-known enough as a speaker of as being that way, the people don't pick me if they don't want right. And that's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, I don't like chocolate. Right. So I don't pick chocolate as the dessert. It doesn't mean that you don't like, you could, you could like chocolate. Mm -hmm. We all, it's, you know. The sector as a whole, the way charities function, could use a little bit of that, though. They could use a little oh, yes. bit more um, candor and authenticity. We were talking about that yep. earlier. And, yep. and the, culture, the culture could be reshaped if there were more pioneers willing to go in that direction, right? It's interesting. My um, most recent book is about governance, and it's about board members. And... <clears throat> I came up with this title, and the title is Firing Lousy Board Members, dot, 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 and Helping the Others Succeed. Now, I had a, a conversation with the publisher about, that's kind of harsh. I mean, it's, in, it's harsh. Fire, lousy. Mm -hmm. These are not nice words. I said, so maybe, we, maybe it shouldn't be called that. And the publisher's response was, Oh, for heaven's sake, could we quit being so politically correct? <laughs> could we start? And, and what's the purpose of a title of a book or the headline in a newspaper yeah, to article? Grab people. Grab Absolutely. people's attention. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. So, in fact, the conversation about firing them is like two pages of this small book. Everything else is about, for heaven's sake, Help do it them right be in the successful. first place. Give them the right. tools. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's not rocket science, really. I don't know why we make no. this business so complicated. I think sometimes we make it so complicated, Kimberly, about, because an awfully lot of it's about power. Mm -hmm. You're my boss, mm -hmm. so I can only push so far because I've decided you're not the kind of boss that will accept feedback or challenge. On the other hand, then over here there's a boss who will, and how do I know you won't accept it if I've never tried? <laughs> so we make assumptions. Mm -hmm. We worry, and rightfully so in many cases, about power dynamics. You know, I can't say right away to this donor, I'm sorry, we, we, we would not do that. <laughs> so you don't want to give us a gift for that. We're it's all this jockeying around, you know, politics, small p, which is part of life. We're also being pushed from other places, whether it's the board saying raise more money or your boss saying raise more money. And we're desperately trying to say, excuse me, could we like just get to know people a little bit and nurture relationships? It suddenly becomes about the money. Everything is about the money. And we're, we're desperately, it seems to me, trying to figure out how to be honest, genuine, caring, transparent, effective, efficient. And make money at the same time. And do all of these things, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we better get better at it mm -hmm. because... You know, anybody who is listening to this podcast needs to d look at the Olive Cook debacle in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is search Olive Cook and then read all of the media coverage and the responses and everything. It's like we're all just an inch away, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> from having some donor situation blow up in our face. Not because anybody's being evil, 
and having the board not do governance well enough or intervene so much that you lose every de decent staff person because no one will work that way if the board is running around managing everything. So we have a lot of work to do. We and do. Um, And this has been a great chat. I guess maybe we could just close with, you've spent 40 years doing this. Mm -hmm. Why? What do you love so much about this work? So... Just by way of quick background, I have a master's degree in 20th century American French comparative literature because I made my career decision when I was nine years old to be a French and English teacher in the public schools. I designed my entire life that way, and I couldn't find a teaching job. And then my teaching certificate expired, and it was very clear I would never be able to teach French and English in a school. So then I started looking around for a job, and I don't know, I found some job posting to be an executive director, and I was dumb enough and smart enough to apply, and they were dumb enough and smart enough to hire me. And I fell in love with arts administration. And then I became a chief development officer. I was still in love with arts administration. And then a colleague of mine said, you want to try consulting? Because we could try consulting together. And so I thought, yeah, sure, let's try it. But I don't think it's going to work for me because I really need the commitment to that mission. Lo and behold... What I realized as I was doing consulting was, I want to work with people who want to change. <laughs> I want to work with people who are saying, this is a problem and we want to fix it. And I just, you know, and so I got into fundraising consulting and strategic planning and governance. And then I started writing books. It's like, wow, whoever thought I could write a book? And then I ended up teaching. I'm just not teaching French or English in a school. Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that we're fighting for the rights of people. I believe that the nonprofit sector is central to any society. We have government, we have for-profit, and we must have nonprofit, and we have to build it stronger and stronger. And it has to get tougher and tougher and push against government and for-profits. So I believe that's why I was put in this world. And when people say to me, you know, you're, I mean, they say it graciously, aren't you thinking about retirement soon? And I think, wow, do I look that old? <laughs> I, I can't conceive of retiring. There's still so much to do. Yeah, more books to write and more people to talk to and then more people to give me this new idea and then another <laughs> way to invent this. And it's, oh, I just can't get so excited. I can't stand it. <laughs> well, it's great having this time to get to know you better. Thank you. Well, thank you for asking me. Thank you for spending time here today. There were many tributes written about Simone this month that outlined the extraordinary impact uh, that she had on the lives of so many people. In the show notes, I've linked to the Nonprofit Times tribute so that you can learn more about the extraordinary impact that Simone had on the charitable sector. May she rest in power.